Hey, we're back. I can't even remember how to do this. It's been a long time. I've been doing 16-hour days, and I can't remember. What do I say? Oh, this is the last coffee house. That's what I say. Okay. Is transgenderism contagious? That's a good one to get started <laughs> again. Irreversible damage, the transgender craze seducing our daughters, written by Abigail Schreier. She was just on the Joe Rogan experience, actually. It was published 2020, and we're going to have a few 2020 books because this is a crazy year. So what are the contents of this thing? So there are a number of emergent phenomena that researchers are trying to understand. This author in particular is a journalist, so she's not a, a medical professional or anything like that. She's just trying to understand what's going on with, with this whole situation. And one thing you notice is that there was this spike in suicidality that happened about 10 years ago and people weren't sure what to make of it, but it actually coincides with the release of the smartphone. So you have the iPhone that comes out and the people who, the companies who follow that, and then we end up with this spike in suicidality and people spend almost all their time on smartphones. Things that were previously not as well socially supported, so things like cutting. It's something that if you do on social media, you can get reinforcement for it. You can win followers on that basis. Things like going out with friends are less likely. We have the lowest percentage of drivers amongst young kids right now than we've ever had. And one thing is that risk-taking is important when it comes to developing character, when it comes to figuring out who you are and, and testing limits and all that kind of thing. Risk-taking is important, but people now are safer physically, but they're more mentally vulnerable. So we've got some case studies here and we see that with the early case studies, there are some who are just never satisfied. No matter what they do to try to affirm their transgender identity, they're just never satisfied. And we see these early pressures to limit the application of lesbianism. Lesbianism is something that's just getting pushed out of this kind of a movement. There's this issue of there being a sex recession. It's just not partaken in as much by the youths anymore. And this phenomenon of prolonged social media exposure that spikes transgender identification and in addition to this the transgender identification is clustered in friend groups so if you have a friend group and one starts identifying as transgender then it'll tend to spread throughout the friend group and the age of onset has increased from preschool age for general gender dysphoria to adolescence now obviously all these things we're not talking about moral claims. We're talking about empirical claims and trying to understand what is empirically happening. So anyone who's trying to change this to a moral question, they're doing it for political or agenda-driven reasons. And then we have this idea of a new diagnosis of rapid onset gender dysphoria and that it's more akin to a craze or a cultural, or a cultural fad as opposed to some kind of a medical issue. And what ends up happening is that you are not getting the treatment that you most need. So people who are expressing these symptoms might need treatment for something else that they don't understand. But they're trying to treat it by doing these other things that are related to transgenderism. And one of the things this author is very clear about is that there's a big distinction between the genuine gender dysphoria cases. So people who exhibit it in you know preschool age, who there's no reason to believe that they were specifically influenced to be it and that when they get the classical treatments for gender dysphoria, they end up as healthy adults who are just living transgender lives. So that's a very big distinction from that and what's happening to young girls today, especially young girls. 
And there are doctors that are getting canceled because they try to resist this whole idea. Uh, so they'll get accused of anti-trans bigotry and end up losing their practice. Like Dr. Lippman was one of the doctors that the author talked to. And I think Lippman talked about how, it might have been Lippman or it might be the author in context of talking to Lippman, but they talked about how kids hunt for barriers to knock down. So you have to be mindful of that. And right now we've got a bunch of middle-class white kids who are trying to be oppressed, you know, at a sublimation or guilt or whatever, but they're trying to be oppressed, so this is the thing that they're attaching themselves to. Lippmann's very clear that the doctor refuses to speculate without data, but trans cases have increased by a thousand percent in the United States and four thousand percent in the UK. Not only that, but historically, boys have hi had a higher, however you want to say it, either people born as boys, or people transitioning from boys to girls, or who were always girls, but they were assigned boy at birth, however you want to say it. Historically, boys have a higher incidence of transgenderism, or gender dysphoria, and now girls are just blowing up. So, the author says that this is very similar to what happens with anorexia. So, things like all the work that you have to put in, all the things Things that you have to go through and have to suffer for the thinness and all the discipline that you have to exhibit to be able to get there even though it can be painful or bad for you those things are seen as virtuous within the community and they're supported within the community and they'll teach each other how to hide it from parents and other people and they treat it as a heroic social identity so mental illness as a heroic social identity and just to be clear, uh, this Dr. Lippmann, and I hate that we have to do this, but this Dr. Lippmann has never voted Republican, so it's not just one of those things. So the big difference now when it comes to teens today versus teens historically is online. You know, it's it's the, the big issue. And in general, overall, women are more likely to validate instead of question. They're also more likely more able to take on their friends' ailments. They're more inclined and able to feel empathy. So this is a, a big issue and explains why it's more likely to be something that is contagious amongst, amongst girls as opposed to something that it's a genuine medical issue uh, like just general gender dysphoria. And then there are all these cultish practices online where they'll get you to reject your family when they don't agree and cut ties with their, your family entirely. Some of them will call it a glitter family that replaces your real family. And then they start peddling, you know, drugs and surgeries. <laughs> they say that you should take these hormones or whatever and you should get these surgeries and they'll coach people on how to lie to doctors to be able to get these things. And the author goes through elementary school, middle school, and high school and the different things that are being taught in those areas how it's different today than it used to be and there's this prevalence of instruction explicit instruction about sex and you wonder what if that is dulling the interest of of kids if the schools are so open and interested in it you know it's like uh, the moment it was a south park episode the moment that your parents think something's cool it's how they got <laughs> <laughs> That's the Chin Pokemon. So when the kids were super into Pokemon, the or Chin Pokemon is what it was called in, in the show, then once the parents think it's cool, then it's no longer cool anymore. So if your parents are telling you that, yeah, it's super awesome to do anal, then it's not cool anymore. It's not subversive. And nobody cares. And that's not my example. That's the example used in the book. So it's not something that's just coming off the top of my head. And it's it's done under the guise of preventing bullying. You know, that's the, the argument that is made. Is that the point is to prevent bullying. But it's just everything is shoved under there. 
and then it ends up that all these beliefs have to be maintained so you have the whole mechanism the whole structure that's trying to support these beliefs and it ends up being that the bullies are mom and dad so preventing the bullies mom and dad you'd see how that could be a categorical difference from somebody on the schoolyard just saying mean things to somebody who wants to wear a dress and then you have a lot of the the physical ailments that can result from a lot of these treatments things like infertility hysterectomies ovarian cancer and you add all these things together and you have you end up with schools who will go behind the back of parents because again they consider the parents the bullies and they will affirm and assist these students into engaging in these lifestyles and participating in these kinds of activities and and that's just the beginning of the things that can go wrong here so then you have the medical profession which is the biggest dereliction of duty by my estimation is that the professionals must affirm so we have this idea the standard now in medical practice for transgenderism that is affirmative care they have to accept the asserted gender and the asserted diagnosis of gender dysphoria and whatever treatment the patient says should be the case and just imagine the same thing based on race, that somebody who is black decides that, well, no, I want to change my nose, I want to lighten my skin, I want to do all these different things to make myself more white. I mean, people would see that these are self-destructive intentions, and we would challenge those and say, that, well, no, that's right, you shouldn't be doing that. We need to figure out what psychologically is going on to make you want to do that, but you can't do that when it comes to transgenderism. And there, there's this other case study was talking about this girl who wanted to reduce her breasts and just wanted to wear a binder. So it just binds the breasts to her chest and it can jeopardize nursing, the ability to nurse long term. And at the time she didn't want kids. And now after having been talked out of it, she has three kids. She nursed them all. And there's some percentage of the people who are kids trying to make these big decisions. There's some percentage who are going to change their mind and they're not going to be able to go back. And there's not, it's not just a, a one-way street that's established and, okay, it's over. Identities are socially negotiated. So once a, a kid is like, oh, there's something wrong with my body, then, and everybody else starts agreeing, then it just accelerates the whole thing, accelerates the whole process psychologically. So you have this thing where a kid is trying to do something and they're doing a kind of experiment where they're trying to figure out whether this thing gets them something back, some kind of reciprocity from the rest of the world and when they get that re that affirmation then they become convinced and then it snowballs because they feel like they can't go back because they have so many things based on this and they don't want to look like an idiot so it's not just this one-way thing that there's nothing else going on here there are a whole bunch of different things that are interplaying to determine what this person's identity is going to be then there's the whole threat of suicide which is a big question when it comes to transgenderism and this particular psychological ailment so just generally when it comes to people who identify as transgender suicide attempts for transgender identifying is 41 percent that's insane that's huge i mean already we have you know rising suicide rates for everybody but in the general population it's 0.6 percent 0.6 percent suicide attempts versus 41 percent now typically when you control for just self-harm that isn't a genuine attempt at suicide, it cuts it in about half, but that would still be about 20% of transgender identifying people engage in genuine suicide attempts. And there's no evidence, no studies that establish that suicidality reduces after reassignment. The vague general repost is always, well, it's because of the bullying, you know, the bullying and they don't feel accepted. That's why that 
the suicide rate is so high, but there's no evidence to suggest that it goes down after reassignment or after affirmation or anything like that. And after hormone blocking, there's no evidence that it goes down. And there are so many, so many of the behaviors are absolutely cultish, so you can't convert out of trans. You don't go to trans and then decide, oh no, I'm just gay. Then you get ostracized and attacked in the community. And in most cases, so 70% of cases historically, children outgrow gender dysphoria. So one approach that has been taken is watchful waiting. So you just watch because gender dysphoria is not generally immutable. So you just watch and wait and see what happens with the kid. 70% outgrow it. Now, 19 states have banned conversion therapy for gays. And you can lose, in a lot of states, you can lose your medical license for not agreeing with the affirmative model as it's been established. One of the doctors, I can't remember which doctor, it might be Dr. Zucker, but the mere fact that someone is fixated on gender doesn't mean it's true that gender is the issue. You're not supposed to take the patient diagnosis at face value. And then Dr. Zucker was fired and had clinics shut down, and there's a bunch of doctors actually came out and protested the firing. But it's just to show that at least some of the professional medical people refuse to play ball when it comes to this. But there's a lot of pressure. There's Dr. Blanchard who talks about how you're not supposed to take the patient's word. And Dr. Blanchard only works with adults because it's so dicey and there's so much pressure around any young transgender identifying people. So this doctor only works with adults. They make the patient spend two years living as the opposite gender before any kind of reassignment, surgery or hormones or whatever. And the doctor makes the diagnosis and prescribes the treatment. And it's clear that some gender dysphoria can be treated by surgery, but you can present gender dysphoria when, when it's actually related to other psychological issues. And right now, it's like the opioid crisis, where medical professionals are rushing in to meet the demand. It leans heavily on patient claims. It's like handing over the prescription pad to the patient, because you're just taking whatever the patient says at face value. And then, like as we talked about before, there's no history of childhood gender dysphoria. And historically, you wouldn't have gender dysphoria passing from one person to another, so you wouldn't have it clustered in friend groups. And this doctor specifically says, Dr. Blanchard says, that activists aren't the problem. They're activists. You know, that's what they do. Doctors are the problem for not doing their job in this instance. Dr. Bailey talks about how rigorous study and diagnosis should govern. Studies show majority of children with gender dysphoria outgrow it with just the watch and wait attitude. Then there's Krista, another case study, which is a man presenting as a woman who lived quietly until Caitlyn Jenner in 2015. And once Caitlyn Jenner came out, then people are constantly coming up to Krista and making a big deal out of it. You know, Krista was doing fine. There was no issue. <laughs> she just decided later in life that, you know, I'm successful. I feel more comfortable presenting as a woman, so I'm going to do that. And her work and circle of friends, it was perfectly fine. And then Caitlyn Jenner happened and suddenly it becomes this, this social issue that now she has to participate in a particular way when she just wants to live her life, just in general. And Krista specifically says that feelings don't trump genetics, and I accept and understand that, I just feel more comfortable presenting as a woman. And it hasn't been a problem, and now it's, it's this big issue. The Forgotten L, like we talked about a little bit earlier. So there are TERFs who have arisen in response to this movement, which are trans-exclusionary radical feminists, is what they're called anyway. 
and lesbians to a lot of tra transgender activists, transgender people in general, lesbians are just masculine girls too afraid to be boys. So you have this infighting related to it. And you had this issue with Martina Navratilova, who was cancelled for talking about women being beaten by men. So biological men who are getting to play tennis against biological women and winning. And so Navratilova comes out and speaks about this and she gets dropped by her sponsor because of the backlash against the orthodoxy. Most of them are white, and one of the big things is that you can just choose trans, you know, unlike choosing a different race or something like that. You can just choose trans and get quick social acceptance. So at schools, a lot of the schools, some campuses like Rutgers actually provide testosterone on an informed consent basis. So a kid could just go in, get informed consent, and get testosterone to administer it to themselves. I think it was at Evergreen. Evergreen is a special case, though. 40% of the students are LGBTQ when the the incidence of it is about 10% around the world. And testosterone itself, it, it doesn't just work on the body, it also showers the brain. It's not a neutral act. There are things that could affect, it could reduce peak IQ. There's evidence that it affects sexual development and can impact orgasm, ability to orgasm, can cause infertility. But on the other hand, it reduces anxiety. So this is the kind of boost that somebody can get from taking testosterone. And it's so weird that doctors have just given up their responsibility when it comes to people medicating themselves like this for a psychological ailment. It can lessen short-term memory, it can increase moodiness and irritability, it redistributes fat differently, you know, women distribute fat on their bodies differently from what men do. There are videos all online about how to inject testosterone, it can increase cardiovascular risk. One influ I hate this word, influencer. One influencer in this area said that it was good that it increased cardiovascular risk because it made you more like a man because men are at a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. It can give you a cloudy head, but it gives you a mood elevation. <laughs> it can cause vaginal atrophy, but ultimately it's more about the aesthetics than it is about the health. You have heightened rates of diabetes, cancer, heart disease. A lot of women will need prophylactic hysterectomy to prevent cancer. And there are no long-term studies that dysphoria and suicidality are reduced after the treatments. Then you have things that are more invasive, things like top surgery. It's not just that easy that you can remove and add these kinds of things. It's like if you took an eye out and just put it in a glass eye, it destroys the function. And there's no other cosmetic medical procedure that destroys the function of something on your body. So it would be like if somebody went in to fix your nose to make your nose look better, but you wouldn't be able to smell afterwards. Now, a lot of transgender doctors will say that, oh, well, it, they seem gratified, so it, it must work. They, feel, they seem to feel better. In some cases, you don't even need a therapist referral. You can just diagnose yourself, even as a 16-year-old in some cases, you can diagnose yourself and go get top surgery. So something that destroys the functioning of your body, you can go get that, you don't even need a therapist referral. Then there's bottom surgery, which can get much worse. Few people actually get bottom surgery. There's of course the phalloplasty, anybody who's seen South Park, why do I keep going back to South Park? So one thing that happens is that because there's a higher demand for bottom surgery, even though not many get it, but there's so many more who are transgender identifying, one thing about it is that the demand is skyrocketing, so you have plastic surgeons who don't have any expertise in this area, but they'll expand their practice. And then you'll have horrible things that result. You'll end up with sepsis and blood clots and failed urethra, something that can happen. 
And one of the worst things I've ever heard of that I don't want to recount in here because I don't want it to be part of my legacy backlog of books that I've reviewed here. I don't want to have to keep hearing about this thing and I don't want to traumatize anybody who's listening, but it's one of the worst things I've ever heard of. Of places like Oregon, they will cover trans procedures for free. There are a whole bunch of things that are going on here. So doctors have been losing their prestige. There's this whole talk of the right to free care. You have these issues, which is terrifying, is that you'll have a 14-year-old who gets tons of positive reinforcement online by coming out as trans. And there was this one particular person, she was 14 and starting to get on to the, you know, in social media, she was conversing with a bunch of trans people. And then she would get these requests for sexting. They'd be asked for pictures and try to talk sex stuff with this 14-year-old. And then when she rejected the sexting and said, no, I'm not going to participate in that, she was told that she was kink shaming and would end up being ostracized from these communities. So, or otherwise attacked for doing that. Like, that's concerning. I mean, it was one thing back in the day when you had on the, on the chat rooms and have Chris Wallace show it up. Uh, what you doing here? You know, that stuff. But this is this is a whole nother... Because it's so easy and everybody has a smartphone. This is a, a whole nother category of the kind of predatory behavior that can happen. And it's in the midst of these kind of cultish behaviors that try to separate you from your parents and, and everything. Testosterone itself is addictive, so that's going to reinforce it. Online shaming is key. You know, this one particular girl got shamed for being followed by the wrong person and not blocking them quickly enough. Again, it's just to ensconce this group, the cultish behavior. And then ultimately, she just realized that she was a lesbian. <laughs> she was just attracted to other women and unfriended the extremists who didn't find her a real trans. Then there's Helena, who went online and learned all these stories about how to alter your story historically to get hormones and how to lie to social workers. Got a prescription for testosterone. She blocked her parents. And when she was in it, she said it felt like a cult. And she started feeling miserable. So she reconnected with her family. And now she helps people who are detransitioning from this situation. And she was saying that adults should apply skepticism. That should be their role in this. And I think the author talks about how you should imagine a cult that demands that adherents get a gastric bypass or some other medical procedure to be part of the cult. And it's a dangerous thing. So what should you do? Don't get your kid a smartphone. That's a big one. <laughs> it's a tough one in this age. But you shouldn't get your kid a smartphone. The skyrocketing of self-harm correlated directly to the release of the iPhone realize you're the parent and that a 13 year old straight or lesbian is still a 13 year old one thing that you have to realize is that when you house anorexics on the same floor then they're going to educate and enable each other you know it's just like when people go to prison and they educate each other about how to be better criminals you should punish bullying for any reason not just bullying when it goes one direction and reintroduce privacy in the home i thought this was a, a very good idea is that one thing we just kind of compulsively share everything that goes on with our lives online nowadays so quit sharing every part of your life on the internet and one thing i thought about is that 
social media is like playing a video game 24 hours a day you know it's something where you get that that little dopamine shot because you're getting points you're constantly getting points and when you play call of duty or something that's something that happens is that you get a little bit of a rush every time you get a kill you get a, a little bit bigger of a rush when you get a win so you'll just play it over and over and over again, doing the same thing over and over and over again to try to get those little those little bursts. So on social media, it's the same thing that you just you're playing, you're playing, you're playing, trying to get this rush or that. Oh my god, they retweeted. Oh my god, they liked it. And so if we looked at it in that context, then it would be uh, more apparent that it's something that we need to curb when it comes to what people, how much time people are spending doing X versus Y. And there are these these cases of girls who were like one was sent to a horse farm so she got to go work with horses and ride horses and all that sort of thing and she stopped feeling all that anxiety and the angst that's associated with she was saying that she felt like she was transgender and and starting to engage with transgender people online but then her parents sent her off to this horse farm and she got interested in that and started <laughs> you know taking that seriously and she felt fine after that there were other families that uprooted to another area, and this has been very effective apparently, is just moving to a different area away from people who are trying to get your kid, your little young girl, engaged in this kind of behavior. Bring her home from college, if she's off at college and doing, I saw there were a bunch of stories about how kids whose parents were paying their tuition, the kids would start saying, well, I'm transgender now and you don't support me, so uh, I'm never gonna talk to you again, but still expect their parents to pay the tuition. And there's this, I don't know why I didn't run into it as I was going through it, but this whole idea of the threat of suicide. Because suicidality is so high for transgender people, a lot of the doctors who are on board with this stuff will tell parents that, you know, suicide, they're gonna commit suicide if you don't affirm their identity. You just have to affirm their identity or they're gonna commit suicide. So imagine that being used against you as a parent to say you have to do this one thing or this other thing. I mean, that's insanity. That's the, the most terrifying kind of fear-mongering that you can possibly use. And that's being used in a context where doing the thing that they're saying you should do doesn't reduce the risk of suicide so anyway other things uh, like family sabbaticals where you just take your family away and go have some time together have been very useful so all those are methods to be able to deal with young girls who are having this issue and important I think this is probably the most important thing that comes out of this book and comes out of this whole craze is we need to stop pathologizing girlhood girls are not defective boys they are different they don't have to be rigidly self-interested or competitive. We need to stop taking stereotypes so seriously. That was one of the whole points of through the civil rights era and and the liberation of women and all that stuff as one of the important points is to stop taking stereotypes so seriously whether people exhibit the stereotypes or don't exhibit the stereotypes it's not that and this is the fundamental thing as i shift into my analysis here this is the fundamental thing about this whole idea is that you know for a person who's just a young kid who's trying to figure out who am i who am i you know like jackie chan for a young person who's trying to figure that out, if they see that people are saying that, okay, if I act at all like a boy, I must be a boy. If I act at all like a girl, I must be a girl. And the way that they have to figure out whether they're acting like a boy or a girl is by looking at stereotypes. They have to say that, well, this is stereotypically boy, this is stereotypically girl. So therefore, I have to run down this road if I exhibit any of these characteristics. It's not a big deal. <laughs> like, we don't need to gauge your validity as a given gender based on stereotypes. It would be very easy to just say that, okay, the only thing that we mean by sex or gender is that you have these particular chromosomes that have this particular phenotypic expression. And we only use it for that purpose. But otherwise, you can do whatever you want. You can wear whatever dress or whatever. 
And one of the things is that you don't have the same boundaries for kids anymore. I think if parents came out and just were <laughs> were against being gay again, or were against just <laughs> too much dancing or something like that, if they were like, they don't really care about that, but they're, they put up some kind of a barrier for their kids so the, the kid has something to knock down, then we would be in a much healthier position. Because right now, kids have to figure out, how do I define myself by this world right now that's so accepting? And the way that you do that is by pushing these boundaries so you have to find the boundaries. So once the parents push back on something and say that, okay, I accept it if you identify this way, you do that, you want to get a tattoo, you want to smoke, whatever the hell you want to do, I accept it, do whatever you want, then the kids still have to keep pushing to find that boundary. So just realize, you know, the adults are the adults, parents are parents, kids are idiots, and we need to stick to that, period. But this book, just in general, it's a really important adjustment in the way that we look at this issue. The, the studies are applied in limited ways, which is much appreciated when it comes to trying to figure out the empirical phenomenon that we're, we're trying to address. Obviously, the author is a journalist, not a scientist, and she doesn't present herself as a scientist. She's just reporting what the doctors, the professionals are saying, and the case studies and isn't trying to overstep, you know, her conclusions on that basis. Obviously, when it comes to any kind of a study or any kind of professional opinion, you have to take it with the grain of salt that you don't understand <laughs> the... You don't have the understanding necessary to be able to evaluate the literature and the claims being made by the professionals, so we can't know for sure one way or the other. But I think it makes a pretty good case, and it seems to fit with everything else that we've learned when we're going through all these books, about how people function, how society functions and what is healthy and unhealthy. So important ideas that come out of this, and obviously you'd have to look at the studies directly, but things like clustering of in friend groups of trans identity. That's a big deal. That's so different from the way that it presents generally. The extreme increase in cases, so a thousand percent in the United States, four thousand percent in the UK, and the dearth of ability to be able to identify yourself right now. Obviously that's a bigger concept, and it's something that would have to be looked at more carefully, but just in general, kids don't have a way to identify themselves. They don't have something to fight against right now. So they overdo it when it comes to transgenderism or anti-Trumpism or, you know, anti-racism. They just overdo it because there aren't real problems that they can fight against to define themselves with. That's why it's so many white liberals, white middle-class liberals who are doing this kind of a thing. And I'm not sure if she brought it up in the book, she, she talked about it in the interview, that if it was just about acceptance generally in the culture, then you would see more older people transitioning. You'd see more older people seeing that, okay, it's more acceptable now, so now I can uh, express myself properly at the same rates that younger people are doing it, but it's much more likely that it's contagion given the rates amongst young people. And fundamentally, this is really about just the psychological upheaval of teenage years. That's, everybody went through it, everybody goes through it, everybody will continue to go through it. They're trying to figure out what the hell's going on with them psychologically and internally and everything else. And it just presents itself in different ways. So one way that they can do that is by attaching themselves to transgenderism. And the author would make sure to point out <laughs> that there's a difference between genuine gender dysphoric people who will benefit from this kind of treatment and people who are just trying to hop onto a craze to deal with the angst that they feel as a teenager, that everybody felt. And again, it's the fact that we stole their opportunity to rebel against things, so now they have to find something. They have to find a barrier. They're just blindly going around trying to find a barrier to push down and say, Haha, I'm, I'm a person now. I've done something. Okay, big picture wise, children need leadership and expectations. 
Okay, I know there's so much of this idea that the children just have it all figured out and this is something that's being pushed all over, whether it's Greta Thunberg or transgenderism or, you know, just the protesters in the streets regarding racism. We like to pretend that children just have it all figured out because they're so great and we're living in this society now that gives everybody a trophy. But children need leadership and expectations. They need to be defined by those things so they understand what they need to be doing in the world to, to do what's best for themselves and to do what's best for society. Instead of them all pretending that they know everything. The reality is that kids are not, like, they're not happy in this position. They don't know anything. They're idiots. But they're thrust into this position and told, you've got it all figured out, so you do all the right things now. And you create this weird pathology where they have to pretend like they've got it all figured out, and they have to go do something and get praised for it, <laughs> and they're not actually accomplishing anything. Everybody tests limits to define themselves, especially in childhood. Right now, we're raising a generation and Telling them they have the right answer no matter what they say, no matter what they do. The only thing that they had to do to be right was to be born whoever they are. It's like, done, that's it. <laughs> that's just a recipe for a terrible future. The biggest thing that was kind of a betrayal when it came to this story to me is the medical profession just giving up their duty, their duty to not do harm. And I don't know how prevalent it is around the world, you know, when it comes to other countries, but in the United States, it's just completely unacceptable that any doctor would give up this duty. And I think this is this degradation of professionals seems to be just par for the course right now in this country. I don't know what the hell's going on, but when it comes to doctors, when it comes to journalists, they are caving to ideological pressure campaigns instead of exhibiting integrity and making sure they do what's right because it's right. Because they gave an oath, because they have a responsibility as a professional to do these things. And I think that's the thing that's at greatest risk in 2020 America is integrity. People really have to push back against this ideological orthodoxy and all these inquisitions going on all over the place. So anyway, wow, that was a long one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> It wasn't even a long book. It was actually a pretty short book, but there was just so much information in there. So there's a topic for you to discuss. I don't think it's something that I've touched on throughout the rest of the books that we've talked about so far, unless I'm forgetting one. But we're also going to have another book that just I just got notification today that it's it's out. So we're going to get that read really quickly and get an episode up about that one. But, oh, a lot going on. So, uh, it was because of the lag after the whole shutdown thing. So, then I just had a million things to do all at once. So, it was just 16 hour to, hours a day for weeks. And so, that's why I haven't had time to be able to do episodes. But now, we're back at it. And I'm reading a fantastic book. Fantastic book that's going to be coming up. It's a long book, but it's fantastic. <laughs> And so I'm going to be able to get that one up. We're going to have shorter books in between to get those ones done. We're going to have a lot to talk about. I really appreciate everybody listening. And I'll see you on the next one. That's the last coffee house. All right, bye.